Hello, Grey Fox fans. Flint here. We're doing a bit of Boko content for you. Each of the members of the pod are recording various little episodes, little tidbits, these little shorts uh, going in your ear holes about video games that we we love, video games that we adore, video games that have really left their hallmark on our lives. I know Hemming's done a great Zelda one, which I think we're starting with the first one, um, and I thought I'd I'd come in with my uh, forte into this. If you like it, we'll keep doing it. If you don't, then you know what? And that's why it's called an experiment. Um, so, without further ado, I'm going to talk about Resident Evil 2. Yes, I know, I know. The Resident Evil guy is going to do a Resident Evil podcast. Big whoop. But hopefully you can see a little bit of the passion as to why I think this video game is one of the greatest of all time. But for me to do that, I need to kind of take you back a little bit. So let's cast our minds back to 1999. It was a bit of a simpler time. Um, I was about 12 or 13. There was a little bit of anxiety going around about the year 2000 thing. Uh, films like The Matrix and Austin Powers were very much part of my my zeitgeist. Uh, Pokemon started becoming a thing. Uh, Napster started being a thing. Uh, I think I didn't have a phone, but I saw people started having phones like the 3210 and stuff like that. Uh, my parents were living in a council house and I only just got my first real hands of my own console. Uh, my first console, though I had a, a master system, that was my dad's and a Mega Drive and that kind of stuff. My first actual console that was all mine was my PS1. Users lose all sense of reality and enter another world. Remember, do not underestimate the power of PlayStation. My dad had worked his socks off, he got that thing for me and it used to sit there in the in the living room next to our TV. It wasn't until my dad just went, we've got to get the boy his own TV. This is really doing me head in. You know, he's constantly just sitting here playing this thing. I want to watch my own thing. So um, I had my own PlayStation 1 and for the first time in my life, I had a TV in my bedroom. And that TV bought independence. It bought independence to how I started to see the world and the pop culture I'd consume. And anyone who lived in the, the UK during the sort of late 80s, early 90s would know that there's only a few channels actually available for you to watch stuff on. But in the evenings or on bank holidays or on, on times when there was no one around, they'd always be sticking on lots of classic old movies. When I say old movies, we're not talking like decades old, just like a couple of years old. And I, I started becoming obsessed with horror movies and with no one to police what I was watching upstairs, I was watching stuff that a 13-year-old probably shouldn't be watching and becoming obsessed very quickly. And like I said, horror was really my bag. I used to watch films like Alien 3, first time hearing those chest busters happening. Weird side of, of sci-fi would had out intertwined. So films like Event Horizon would be on or, or bring that into kind of the classic slasher horror with Scream and the faculty. Hello. Let's play a game. You know you're like the 10th guy to try this, right? It never works out for the dipshit in the mask. It really did sort of, as I was finding more and more of these movies, I'd like record them on a VCR and just watch them again and again and become obsessed with them. Obsessed with the tone, obsessed with the colours, obsessed with the tension. This was me being an adult. This was no longer me sitting there watching Power Rangers in the living room. This was me being a, a film buff in my own bedroom. I had the power to see all these different worlds and experience these different emotions in ways that I probably would never have felt if I was sitting there awkwardly with my parents in the living room. Down the road, there was a neighbour who also had a PlayStation. He was a little bit older than me, and he also had an older brother. And yeah, as mentioned, grew up in a council house, working class family, didn't have that much stuff. So uh, getting lots of video games wasn't really a thing for me. I was very lucky to get demos. So like my dad would bring me these old magazines with the PlayStation demos on, but I'd never really kind of had like a massive game library. So 
this neighbour kind of took pity on me. He was like, oh, do you want to keep swapping games? So, you know, I only had like a couple of games. So, and he knew I already had them, but he would let me swap with what games he had. Anyway, his older brother had this game they were talking about called Resident Evil 2. And I saw the, I remember seeing the case for the first time around his house and it was a really striking image. It was just a, a, a what appeared to be like a zombie's face but it was in a negative image. It was like a white face in a black background, very striking, kind of pierce through your soul when you see those images for the first time. And I kind of said, can I potentially swap this? And my neighbour's brother just went, mate, how about this? It's a two-disc game. You don't need both discs to actually start playing. How about you borrow one disc, and then when you complete the disc, you can come back and swap it. And I was like, what? You can, like... Isn't, is this illegal? <laughs> is there, you're like basically giving away their property and you can play at the same time. But uh, anyway, the idea of being lent a disc and giving it a go, I was like, yes, please. So I ran home. I remember it was a Sunday afternoon and I, I, I just didn't stop playing until the early hours of the morning the first time I played it. Um, the first time I popped that disc in the PlayStation, you go through those very nostalgic sounds and you go through to the game. And this was the first real adult game I ever played. This was the first real adult game where it wasn't like, hey, we need to go to Frumpy Land and save us from all the, the, the gummy drops. This was very much a... It, the game even tells you this when you turn it on. You see a title screen that pops up, and I'll never forget the iconic words, this game contains scenes of explicit violence and gore. And I was like, I'm in, bruv, let's go for it going through into that menu screen where you see just a piercing eye, a singular eye in the centre of the screen staring at you again that same emotion you felt when you held that case for the first time and then I clicked new game and start game and for the first time what had become a staple of the games I heard that voice utter the immortal words Then the game starts, but it doesn't start with like airy fairy. Hey, you know, we're we're here to to collect the things and save the stuff. You know, this is a CG movie you go straight in for, and I've never seen a CG movie at the start of a video game. This is not like uh, the the Tomb Raider intros in the original '96 game. Oh, God bless it, I love it, but it was very like Michelin men walking around and and not looking particularly great. This looked like a polished movie at the time, anyway. And you come in to see the the, the landmark of a city and the switching angles and suspense like a horror movie just like how a how a John Carpenter movie would open over how a, a truck is slowly coming in and you see a light shining over some birds hovering around something you don't quite know what it is till the camera switches back and you realise that's a corpse this ain't Crash Bandicoot this is something pretty suspenseful going on already the suspense is building, pulsating. The music starts coming in. Again, never experienced this through the medium of a video game before. You hear a piano crashing and matching that tension. Then a shatter of glass and the first zombie. The first zombie I think I ever saw in a video game. It might have been the first time I've ever actually saw the concept crash to the floor. You learn everything you need to know in those first four minutes about zombies, about how it's spreading through the town, how you're overrun and what the protagonist needs to do to survive. Hook it into my veins. I am all in. The game very quickly showed me why this is a serious survival horror game. As I started to unload lead into my foes, I realised I was becoming swamped very quickly. But this isn't a, oh well, you lose some life, you've got to collect some rings or you've got to pick up some apples. 
your health is deteriorating. Yes, you can use things to bring your health back up, but there is a definitive endpoint, and that endpoint is when you are overswamped and your health is in danger. At that point, you're not met with a, hey, do you want to go back to your last save point, or do you want to collect some more rings or use some sort of tablet or artifacts to bring yourself back to life? No. You are met with a horrific in-game rendered clip of zombies swarming your corpse. You're hearing your protagonist screaming while blood is splattering on the screen. The screen then unveils a, you have died, message. Ear silence, then you're sent back to the menu screen. Stakes were high, you got the feeling of finality. And when you discovered your save rooms in this process, using typewriters and a ribbon, all of a sudden you had a feeling like of achievement or this was some sort of safe haven. To accompany this symphony of tension, of course, is the music. Uh, this game builds on dread, suspense and fear. From isolated corridor scenes to the police station, down to sewers that are all murky and horrible, to these very pristine white secret labs. All designed to make you feel like you're in an ordeal every time you reach those safety rooms and those safe spaces. But those rooms really did give you a sense of rest, a chance to tend to your wounds, check your inventory. It punctuated your stay in the police station. It provided like a, a, a hurdle when you were talking about going through the sewers. And when you got to the labs part of the game, you'd use it as an opportunity to, to read your files. In fact, there was one safe room where you discovered a video about how the virus started spreading throughout the city. As you progress through the game, you realise that your story is actually one half of an intertwining double act between Leon and Claire. Wait! Don't shoot! Get down! We can't stay out here. Head to the police station. It'll be a lot safer. You don't realise that those intersections are actually moments that become flagpole events in the canon of the game. And you can replay them from both perspectives. Prior to this, to me, a video game was just a narrative where you started here, your hero goes there, they complete a task or two, then you see a video of them achieving their goal at the end. That was it. Roll credits, move on to the next one. But this had an element of, what was the other person doing at this time? Actually introduced a real concept of replayability, and that's where the scenario system was groundbreaking for me. You know, if I go back to that little 13-year-old kid who borrowed his neighbour's disc, I'd then come back and go, oh, can I borrow the other disc? And now come back, oh, can I borrow the other one again? Because they've done this scenario system of scenario 1, scenario 1A, scenario 1B, scenario 2B. It was amazing having those things intertwine and figuring out the lore, writing it all out yourself, seeing it all paced together. Of course, the sounds of shuffling feet and groans of those zombies were kind of a a tried and tested method in loads of these kind of horror franchises that inspired this game but where this game took it to the next level was the escalation between the characters that meant that the new creatures they were creating were bigger they'll be faster and just scarier monstrosities they would always have a big reveal moment that would start piling up the difficulty as you progress through the game and become iconic. One of the most iconic versions of that can be the liquor. Um, if you, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you know what I mean when I talk about a liquor, but for the uninitiated, they're like bear sized creatures that have elongated tongues that can grab their foes and pull them in. Their whole brain is fully exposed, they're covered in just no skin, it's just muscles and tendons and blood and claws. Oh, the stuff of nightmares still scares me to this day the first time I saw those things. The music that accompanies these things as it shatters through the glass in the car park scene or in the labs where you have to take on multitudes of them. 
ever-evolving arms race between these new creatures as you're progressing through the games. Again, was a stale, it was a, become a stale mark in the entire franchise, but it really started finding its feet in Resident Evil 2. And the first time this young lad was seeing it, holy hell, I was blown away by it. But once you've gotten over the zombies, dogs, and various mutations, there was another really scary element. Dr. William Birkin. A human who injected himself with a new version of the virus, and every time you came across him, he'll be mutating again and again. With each passing encounter, he'll be harder, there'll be different elements you had to watch out for, different weapons, different tactics. This character design was very much influenced by the John Carpenter movies that were around at the time. Again, the kind of movies that I'll be watching on a Sunday night, films like The Thing, all that sort of stuff. I become obsessed with this kind of stuff. Um, and that led into the game's ending. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it, although it's a nearly 30-year-old game at this point. But that ending where you went down to the labs and all of a sudden you saw William Birkin again in his final form as he's uh, you're trying to escape after you've gotten this glimmer of hope of a cure that could maybe salvage everything from this and you see that big blubbly mess on the train reaching out to you the last moment you thought it was safe when you thought it was all over you had to go take down that mother hubbard one last time once you completed the game, there was loads of bonus content as well. I never realised bonus content was really a thing in games. Again, back to that replayability. Um, getting weapons like the infinite rocket launcher. All of a sudden, this game went being a, I've got to look after my handgun ammo and make sure I keep things safe too. I've got this Mother Hubbard massive-looking rocket launcher that's going to blow the crap and basically make this game pretty fun in a different way. Also... The Mercenaries games, um, we've talked about it at length on the pod, but things like the Tofu character, which started out as just a bit of a fun QA thing, which they actually bedded into the game. The lasting effect of this game was incredible, from the emotion you felt as you were going through those dank dart sewers, to the sounds the guns would make, to the dialogue between the characters. Yeah, sometimes it was cheesy, but sometimes it was taking itself very seriously. And as a 13-year-old, look, wanting the world to take him very seriously about how he, I'm not a child anymore, I watch films like The Thing and Event Horizon, and I love George A. Romero movies all of a sudden, this was the perfect combination of time. It was the perfect mixture of horror, pop culture, and video games that narrative was so compelling how it took a little bit of plausible science over this is a virus and it's spreading through biting to the absolute out of this world complete weird sci-fi batshit craziness with the the william burke mutations with the dr x stuff now of course we're sorry mr x i should say with the mr x stuff and um, although it was a massive thing in the remake it wasn't so big in the original yes there was an element as part of claire's storyline you would have this this creature following you around but of course they elevated that to 11 in the remake and let's talk about that for a second um this is about the original game this this particular episode but that remake and i think the best way to describe it was what my 13 year old brain saw when he played that first playstation one version of that game all those years ago that is what i see now when i played the resident evil 2 remake oh my god i'm sure in a few years time i'll do an episode completely about that remake it is one of my favorite video games of all time but this original og this masterpiece where i'd go back and play it for years again and then then it inspired my love of this franchise i went back and played the original resident evil i went on to play resident evil nemesis i remember you know I think there's statue of limitations on this. I, I had a chipped PlayStation and I would uti- I'd, uh, get copied games through my dad's mate at work and then all of a sudden I'd be getting like 
Japanese imports and getting weird versions of, of these Resident Evil games, which I'll complete to death. I'd love every second of them. I want to see a little bit more. What happened to Leon? What happened to Claire next? I won't talk about how the narrative goes on after this, because this is just about Resident Evil 2, but setting up that promise over there's more stories to be told here. We don't know where they're going, but our heroes are safe. But the, de- uh, the, the ordeal is still not over. That was so compelling and one of the greatest video games of all time. If you've enjoyed listening to this and you want to listen to more, well, good news. Um, each of the hosts are going to be recording various versions of their favourite video games and a nice little bit of boco for your, for your no-shows and give it a give it a whirl. Um, if you've liked it, click on that subscribe button, give us comments, contact us on Twitter at Plays. I think it's still called Twitter. If this is something later on in the future, whatever they call Twitter, that's the thing you can contact us going forward. But I have been Adam Flint. Thanks for listening.